Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, February 5th, we're studying Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Jesus returns to his home base, where he continues to teach, to heal, to forgive, and to call disciples to follow him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Clint Poppy. Pastor Poppy serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Uh, it's a great honor, Tim. Thanks for having me. As we get started this morning, Pastor Poppy, give us some context here in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 9. What do we need to know about the surrounding context that will help us with the text today? Well, I think most people are probably familiar that the Sermon on the Mount, the first great discourse in Matthew, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, probably most familiar with the Beatitudes in the early part of chapter 5. But 5, 6, and 7, part of the great discourse, and then uh, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, he goes to work. And recorded in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 are 10 uh, wonderful, marvelous, various miracles. And in the section we'll be looking at today, the, the only two parts where in these two chapters we don't have a miracle, the uh, little discourse with regard to the calling of Matthew, and uh, then this uh, question about fasting, which is really not a question about fasting. So we have a great miracle here in uh, Matthew 9, 1 to 8, and it is in the um, one-year series every year. I believe uh, Trinity 17 or 19, one of those two, toward the end of the Trinity season, and it comes up in series A as well. Um, and then uh, the call of Matthew, which is the uh, gospel reading for the festival of St. Matthew as well. So people should be familiar with many of the words we're going to be looking at today. Very good. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in. we got quite a bit of text today, so let's, let's go ahead and start looking at it. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, that's Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. That's the text we have for today, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. 
So Pastor Poppy, as we get started here at the beginning of the text, we've, I think we've got a familiar account, as you said, it shows up in the, the one-year lectionary um, and, and the three-year lectionary both, we said, right? So we, we know this. This is one of those common Sunday school stories, I think, that we learn as, as children. What, how does this account get going for us? Well, we have here in Matthew a shorter account of what is uh, expanded in Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, 1 to 12, this is, uh, this is the exact same miracle in the exact same account where the, the people bring the man that's paralyzed to Jesus. They can't get close to him because of the big crowds. They go up on top of the roof. They rip a hole in the roof. They lower the man down in front of Jesus. This is the same miracle. Matthew doesn't give us as many details uh, because he's emphasizing a, uh, a different point in this particular miracle, but this is the same one. So if you want a little expanded uh, text on this, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. When Jesus comes back home, crosses the sea, comes back home to Capernaum, uh, his home base, uh, the crowds hear about it. And the crowds gather around, and uh, they want Jesus to do for them, uh, or for their friends in this case, what Jesus has been doing. Uh, preaching, teaching, and doing miraculous signs. So they brought in this paralyzed man laying on a bed, and uh, Jesus responds in a way that uh, they were not expecting or anticipating. One of the things that stands out is that, as Matthew records it in verse 2, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, which maybe, at least it strikes me as a bit unusual, that he would see their faith and that's what causes him to respond to the paralytic. Is this a—I mean, I, I remember learning in, in youth confirmation class when I was a youth, we talked about how my faith can't save another person. So are we seeing here more of a picture of a prayer? Is that the idea with Jesus saw their faith and he responds in answer to a prayer? Uh, that that can be a part of what's going on uh in the wider context of the Gospel of Matthew, there is one word that keeps jumping out, and we have it in our text here. We had it in the uh, uh, previous words from Matthew chapter 8, but this whole question of authority. Who has authority? And does Jesus have some kind of special authority from God, and if so, why? And he sees their faith in his authority, that he is who he claims to be. And so this is not a situation, like, like you learned properly in Sunday school, where, where we, belong, we believe for another person. I think what we have here is a great picture of what we see when a mom and dad believe in the love, care, compassion, and authority of the triune God, and they bring their little one to the baptismal font. Uh, they know where faith is distributed. They know who is the author and perfecter and giver, giver of life. And so they bring their friend here, uh, just like a parent would bring a child to the baptismal font where God promises to work. And so they, they bring him here to the one they know has this authority, and Jesus responds to that faith because that faith is right. But I think I think you said that he surprises them in the way that he responds. What, what were they thinking he was going to do, and, and what does he actually do? Well, just, just imagine uh, that the uh, local Benny Hinn-type faith healer is coming to your town, and you or someone you love uh, is suffering from a terrible malady, uh, walking with crutches in a wheelchair, some deformed limb or whatever and you go to this miraculous healer, what are you expecting? Uh, are you expecting a pep talk? Are you expecting a gift certificate to the uh, local grocery store? No. You want to be healed. That's why you go to the healer. And so the people bring their friend, their paralyzed friend, to Jesus, and Jesus looks at them, uh, and he says, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, you can almost imagine what's going on in their minds. Um, well, 
that's nice, Jesus. Uh, thanks for the forgiveness of sins, but that's not why we came. We came for a miraculous healing. And instead, almost like a bait-and-switch kind of a thing, you give us the forgiveness of sins. And that's what's the, the shocking, startling thing at the uh, beginning of our text. This, this text brings up the forgiveness of sins as a, a pretty big topic, I think. And as I was reflecting on this in preparation for, for the morning, it, it occurs to me that Matthew, I mean, the forgiveness of sins is obviously there in the Gospel of Matthew, but as a specific topic or a specific word, it hasn't shown up a ton. In John, or not John, in Matthew chapter 3, when John is baptizing, there we, we find out that people were coming to him and they were confessing their sins. The forgiveness of trespasses, the forgiveness of sins, comes up in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, but it hasn't been a, a very prominent theme, I would say, at least in terms of that language, up until you get to here, and it becomes very prominent. And and this is one of those things that I, I think maybe we just sort of, well, we think we always know what it is, so it's probably worth our time to reflect on it, Pastor Poppy. What, what is the forgiveness of sins? Why is this such a big deal that we see Jesus doing this here? Well, this is the uh, the heart, core, and soul of the Christian faith. That's why Jesus came. He, uh, he came to bring forgiveness of sin, something that we cannot merit, achieve, buy, or otherwise acquire. And so uh, justification, God's declaration that our sins are forgiven on account of Jesus, is at the center of Christianity. It's the center of everything Jesus is and everything Jesus does. And so Jesus uh, here, by pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, is setting everyone up to determine, do they believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins or not? Are you with me or are you against, against me? Jesus is uh, very, very much teaching a uh, theology of Christ, uh, a Christology with regard to who do you say that this Jesus is? And does he have the authority to forgive sins, or is he blaspheming? Hmm. That's the conclusion that the scribes that are there come to their, their, it comes to their mind, that's the conclusion that they think Jesus is blaspheming. What, is, what does that mean, that they think he's blaspheming, and why do they come to that conclusion? Well, in, in a wider, in a wider uh, scope or wider context, you know, to, to blaspheme would be to say something against God or contrary to God's Word. In, uh, in a very narrower scope, to blaspheme is to claim that you are God or to claim that you have the authority of God when you don't. And so the common understanding is only God can forgive sins. When, uh, when you come into a divine service on Sunday morning and you confess your sins, and then the pastor, in the name, by the stead of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by his authority, pronounces the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, by pronouncing the forgiveness of sins to this paralyzed man, is claiming, I am God. I have the authority to forgive sins. And the people who are watching and witnessing all this that's going on, they understand it absolutely perfectly because they don't believe Jesus is who he claims to be. And that's why the charge of blasphemy is there. So Jesus doesn't disagree with their claim that only God can forgive sins. Is that, I mean, is that fair to say? Or, and since you brought it up, and, and it, may, it may go a little bit beyond this particular text, but you did bring up the matter of a pastor forgiving sins within the divine service. Well, is, is God the only one able to forgive sins? And if that's true, then how does the pastor forgive sins within the divine service? Yeah, Jesus does not disagree with them with the fact that he is claiming to be God. Uh, he goes on to prove that he is. And it is the same thing that we encounter on Sunday morning. And, you know, this is, I, I'm sure, Tim, that you've, you've run into this too. People who are not familiar with how Lutherans worship, they come in, the confession and absolution, and they are immediately questioning or maybe uh, even offended that the pastor is up there forgiving sins. Who does this pastor think he is? 
Well, the pastor is not God. Only God can forgive sins. But by the grace of God, he has given the authority to forgive sins to men, men that he has called and placed into the office. At the end of our uh, little pericope here, the uh, crowds glorified God who had given such authority to men. And that's the same authority by which a pastor pronounces the forgiveness of sins in the name, in the stead of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Sunday morning divine service. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great answer. And, and I think I'm reminded of the words that are found in our, our rite of individual confession and absolution, where the, the pastor asks the penitent, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? And the answer is, is yes. And, and we know that from Christ's own command, the, the sending of his apostles, the sending of his, of his church with this forgiveness of sins, and it's, it's by that authority that, that the man, the pastor, does stand up there and forgive sins, not because it's his, but because it's God's forgiveness. And, and so Jesus that doesn't... Authority, that ahead. authority question really comes full circle in Matthew, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, mm-hmm. where uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So we are following that command and promise of God. Mm, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I love the way that Matthew does that, where, where you see these themes come up time and time again, and then he, he draws them to a nice conclusion. A lot of it does come come together there in that last chapter of, of Matthew. So, so here then, in Matthew chapter 9, the, the scribes think that Jesus is blaspheming because he's forgiven sins. They know that only God can forgive sins. They see that Jesus is here claiming to be God, and they don't believe that he is God. And of course, they're only thinking these things, or they're saying them to their, themselves, but Jesus still knows what they're thinking, and he responds to their thoughts. What, what does Jesus respond to their thoughts, Pastor Poppy? Well, Jesus asks a, a great question, and this is the question that comes out every time a pastor wrestles with this text and is going to preach it to his people on Sunday morning. Uh, what is easier to say? Um, uh Let's see here, verse 5, For which is easier to say, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. Well, when you, when you look at that at face value, uh, it is much easier to say your sins are forgiven because there is no proof. You can't really prove whether you are saying the truth or not. So it's easy to say it's impossible, humanly speaking, to do. And so by asking this question, this rhetorical question, which is easier to say, well, of course it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven because we've got no way to prove that someone's sins are forgiven or not. And then Jesus takes the next step. But that you may know that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And because Jesus has power in his words, the man rose and went home. He was healed. Jesus uses the sign and the wonder, the miracle, to prove that he is who he claims to be, God in the flesh. I want to go back to that question that Jesus asks, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Because the way that, the way that you explained it, I, I don't disagree with at all, um, and, and that's the way that I've always understood it, until, until <laughs> someone, someone once pointed this out to me, which, which is easier for Jesus to say? Is it easier for him to say to this man, rise and walk, or is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? And they suggested that the answer could also be seen that it's it's more difficult for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven because of why how he does that and, and the way that he does that the way that he is able to say your sins are forgiven it's it's he does it through his cross through his through his death his resurrection and that i don't know it it just i'd never thought of it that way have you ever heard that pastor poppy well, yes and that is that is the great reversal that is going on here because from our perspective and from our aspect, it is certainly easier to say the words, your sins are forgiven, because there's no uh, empirical proof behind those words. 
But when we get right down to it, the, the dramatic irony of the words is there's nothing easy at all about the forgiveness of sins. In fact, Jesus is going to bear the weight of the sin of the world in himself and onto himself all the way to Calvary's cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, bearing the weight and the burden of our sin. He's literally sweating blood as he gives up his lifeblood for the life of the world. And so there's nothing easy at all about the forgiveness of sins, knowing what Jesus is going to have to do. And so it is, it is really a both and when you look at that question. Right. So from, from our perspective, just to, to reiterate, from our perspective, to say your sins are forgiven seems very easy, because how do you know? What's, what's the evidence? And yet, from, from Jesus' perspective, to say your sins are forgiven costs him everything. And so we, we can. We can see both answers as, as ways to, to view this text, so that we see Jesus, as you said, proving here that he is God, that he does have authority to forgive sins, and then, and then doing the more difficult task as well, and going forward to actually earn that forgiveness to win that forgiveness. And, and Matthew then does bring it, bring it together here at the end. How do, the, how do the crowds react to what they see, Pastor Poppy? Well, when the crowds saw it, and this is Matthew 9, verse 8, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. I think it's, I think it's interesting that the text tells us that the people were afraid. Uh, I can't help but think to uh, the old King James version of the gospel uh, Christmas Gospel, Luke chapter two, the uh, the shepherds were sore afraid uh, when sinful human beings realize that they're in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. The only thing that can happen is absolute sheer terror in our hearts. Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah realizes that he is in the presence of God Almighty seated on the throne. Woe, woe am I. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. When Peter is confronted with the reality of who Jesus is in the miraculous catch of fish, uh, I'm a sinner. I come from sinful people. Get away from me. I'm not worthy. This is the appropriate response when we are confronted with a holy God, and that is why Jesus came, because no one can stand before a holy God unless he is covered over with the righteousness that only Christ can provide. How does that fear then turn into the glorif glorifying of God that Matthew also records here? God's gift of faith. God's gift of faith. On our own, we are left in the sheer terror and panic of our sins. But when God gives us, you know, we, we confess in the Catechism, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. When this gift of faith is given to us by God the Holy Spirit, and we can see Jesus and the authority that he brings, authority not to condemn us, but through his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection, to bring to us forgiveness, life, and salvation. That's what changes our terror and our fear into praise and worship and glorifying God. We've got just two minutes here before the break, and, and rather than moving on, I, I think it'd be nice to reflect a little bit on how our Lord exercises that authority among us. And, and, and you see it here, you brought up Matthew 28 earlier, where he's, he's got all authority on earth and he gives it, he sends, baptizing and teaching. And, and here you see, how does the Lord exercise his authority? It's, it's through his word. With just about two minutes here before the break, Pastor Poppy, reflect on that for a little bit as to how the Lord exercises that authority among us still today. Well, when, when you look at the entire world and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given by God, uh, God exercises that authority over all creation. And yet in the Church, those who are called, gathered, and enlightened by the Holy Spirit, in the Church, He governs us 
with his word. His word is the ultimate authority, his word of law, which continues to show us our sin, his word of gospel that forgives. Outside of the church, we only have that natural law, that terror, that uh, absolute fear, knowing that one day we're going to die. And that's why he calls us and gathers us into his family called the church, so that he can exercise this authority over us in both law and gospel, comforting us, assuring us, and giving us the strength that we need to face the difficult tasks that we face each and every day. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KF. You're looking at the first part of Matthew chapter 9 with Pastor Clint Poppy. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, February 5th. We're studying Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17 with Pastor Clint Poppy of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus healing this paralytic here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 9. And one one item that we skipped over that we should mention just briefly is that in verse 6, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is, I think, a term that we're familiar with as Christians. We, we hear Jesus use that term of himself, but we don't always pause and reflect on what that means. What is Jesus communicating? What should we understand when he calls himself the Son of Man? Well, when, when we see that word Son of Man, most of us just immediately think, uh, of a messianic title that, uh, you know, Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary and uh, reflecting on his humanity. And yet uh, that Son of Man title is, is an amazing title, especially when you think back to the book of Ezekiel. In, uh, in Ezekiel, God refers to Ezekiel as the Son of Man, and God is not using that in a favorable way. It's like, I'm God and you're not. And so he is constantly calling him, you know, son of man this, son of man that. And so it is really emphasizing the humanity of Ezekiel as opposed to the divinity of the one true God. And so by Jesus claiming that title for himself, every time he says it, he is emphasizing the incarnation. He is really God in the flesh. You see him walking around. He's eating and drinking and sleeping and talking. He looks like an ordinary guy. He's the son of man. But he is no ordinary human being because no mere mortal could do the kind of things that he is doing. And that's exactly what we see in these 10 miracles that are recorded in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. I think that really helps to draw together some of the things we were saying on the other side of the break, too, that, that this one who is clearly claiming to be God here by forgiving sins comes to us as a, as a human being, as a person, one who is just like us, except without sin, so that, that we would see that he comes to us not to condemn, not to, constro- not to destroy, but rather to save us. And so to see him use that title of himself here and, and connect those two natures within himself, the divine and the human— uh, is is a a great uh, a great picture of his of his grace and love and mercy towards us. Any more, more thoughts on this part of the text, Pastor Poppy? Before we move forward, I I think that sets it up very well for where we're going to go from here. Jesus, God in the flesh. You look at him; he's an ordinary human being. How can you believe that this man has the authority to forgive sins? Well, he does the miracle, a miracle that only God can do. And now Jesus is going to continue, and in this, uh, the rest of the verses that we're going to be looking at, he's going to, he's going to call Matthew, he's going to explain this whole uh, bogus question on fasting, and then he's going to get right back doing the miracles, further testimony that he and he alone has the authority 
to make the claim that he is God in the flesh. So as as we move forward then into Jesus' calling of Matthew here, I, I think we'll let's let's start by looking at it in terms of what you've said is already a theme going on here in Matthew, the theme of authority. How do we see Jesus' authority as he calls Matthew? Well, Jesus says the word, and Matthew responds to the word. Uh, as Jesus passed on from here, and this is Matthew nine verse nine, he saw a man called Matthew, Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him follow me. And he rose, Matthew rose, and followed him. Jesus says the word, and at the word of Jesus, Matthew follows him. I think it's important to note he didn't tell Matthew, okay, Matthew, I'm going to give you three weeks to get the books in order. I want you to clean up your life. I want you to stop uh, stealing and accepting bribes. You clean up your life and then hand in a resume, and maybe, just maybe, you can be one of my disciples. He calls Matthew right where he's at, right in the midst of his sin. He calls him, and he calls him out of that to follow Jesus. And by the authority of Christ and the authority of his word, Matthew hears, believes, and responds. Right, there's, there's no Matthew if you want to, Matthew choose me, or something like that, right? It is, it is Jesus' own call that accomplishes this. His word is, yeah, by is the, effective. By the power of the word, no uh, pray the sinner's prayer, no uh, make a decision, not, none of that kind of foolishness. He says the word, Matthew hears and believes. It, it, was, it was striking to me as I was reading through it earlier, the, the parallel between when Jesus says to the paralytic, you, you get Matthew saying, rise, Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then Matthew writes, and he rose and went home. And then it's, it's so similar, in ter- I mean, it's different verbs, but the same construction, right? Jesus says, follow me. He rose and followed him, right? Jesus, in both cases, does what he says. It, it's, it was just striking to read it through and see that. I mean, I, I think well, Matthew probably intends that. One of, the, one of the things that you, you note in Mark's Gospel is the word immediately. Everything is at a fast pace, immediately this, immediately that. And Matthew will use that word as well. But usually things are happening quickly and happening immediately, but you don't see that word. And so the exact things are happening here. Rise, pick up your bed, and he did. Follow me, and he did. And then Matthew, being pulled out of the tax booth, um, Matthew glorifies God in the same way, uh, with a little bit different spin on it, but he glorifies God the same way that the people reacted to the miracle. Hmm. So, so it, the scene changes. You still got the same same actors in the scene, but you got you got Jesus now, and he goes, he goes in to a meal with some tax collectors and sinners. And this is a problem for the Pharisees. So, so again, we have opposition to Jesus. What's, what's the scene here, Pastor Poppy? What's, uh, what's the problem with these tax collectors and sinners as the Pharisees see it? Well, you know, tax collectors and sinners, we see, we see these uh, terms thrown around in the Scriptures, and uh, sometimes we might not be able to put a grip on exactly what's going on in the uh, taxation of the the way the Roman government taxed people, is they put out bids or they put out contracts, and people would buy up the contracts so that they could go and then collect the taxes from the people, and they were free, so to speak, to excise as much as they could get out of the people. And so it was uh, a system that was very, very ripe for scandal, ripe for abuse, ripe for extorting money out of people. And because you had to pay up front for these contracts, only people who were pretty wealthy, pretty well off could do it. So Matthew being pretty wealthy to begin with, now as a tax collector, he is um, in this system where people are getting ripped off all the time. The term sinners refers to not like we would say, you know, well, we're all sinners, but it is gross and manifest sinners, people who are flaunting their sin. That's how that term is used in the scriptures. And so these are the people that Matthew knows. Matthew decides to hold a party. He's 
pretty excited. Jesus has called him. So he calls a party, and who does he call to invite to the party? Sinners and tax collectors. That's his circle of friends. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the opposition party, they are grossly offended that Jesus would associate with these known um, scum of the earth, I guess we could use it. So, and, and particularly that he would eat with them. And this is, this is not a small gesture that Jesus would even sit down to eat with them. What's the significance of that? Well, when you have table fellowship with someone, and this is, this is a major theme in the Gospel of Luke, but when you have table fellowship with someone, this is an intimate relationship. You know, if somebody shows up on your door, uh, you know, selling a fuller brush or Amway or whatever, uh, you might greet them at the door, but more than likely you're not going to invite them in to share in your family meal. Here, Jesus is not only present at this gathering, but he is present in an intimate way. He is reclining at table, he is eating, he is talking, he is mingling with these tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees, uh, when they see this, they are scandalized. Uh, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew 9, verse 11. And uh, uh, probably in the same way that we would be scandalized today if we saw someone um, having intimate fellowship with a known felon or somebody whose picture's in the newspaper because they've committed a bunch of crimes. Mm, right, yeah. I mean, it, it's a—and this isn't a perfect example, but, but today, how often do you see, like, a celebrity get their picture taken with a politician and— and just because that picture was taken with the politician, then everybody on the, quote, other side gets upset about it because their picture was taken together or, or something to that is, is maybe a, another parallel we could draw so that that's what the Pharisees are seeing. And, and you know, I mean, just to, to draw, again, to, to paint this whole picture, here you, you've just had Jesus claim to be God, to forgive sins, and now what, is, what does God in the flesh go and do? He goes and, and eats with sinners and, and I think that's where Jesus' answer to the Pharisees invites us to reflect. God in the flesh, what has he come to do? Who has he come for? How does, how does Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' objection shape up? Well, the, the, the answer is telling in verse 12 and following. Um, when he hears the comments of the uh, Pharisees and such, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Unless you realize that you are a sinner, Jesus has nothing for you. If you are righteous on your own, if you are self-righteous, if you are going to stand before God based on your own merits, Jesus has nothing for you. But if you know and realize and confess that, uh, as, the, uh, as the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. If you realize that you are sinner or chief of sinners, then Christ has come for you, because what he brings is the forgiveness of sins. If you're healthy, using Jesus' own words, you don't go to the doctor. Even if you're sick and are too stubborn, too stubborn or too prideful to go and see the doctor and maybe get a proper diagnosis or a prescription or a surgery, uh, you're all on your own. The doctor can't help you. But when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when Jesus says, those who are well, or I came not to call the righteous— He's not suggesting that there are some people out there who are righteous that actually have no need of him, right? He's, he's suggesting if you think you're righteous, you're really not, but if you think you are, then I've got nothing for you. Is that, is that a fair spot. thing to say? That is, that is not only fair, that is spot on. And uh, he, he is not intimating that uh, there are some people who could be righteous on their own. Uh, God's Word is clear. There is no one righteous, no, not one. 
but we delude ourselves and we think that we are somehow worthy or righteous or good enough or better than uh, Joe or Mary down the street. Uh, God says, be perfect, be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we just love to compare ourselves with other sinners. And certainly, no matter how wicked or evil you are, you can always find somebody who's a little bit more wicked and a little bit more evil than you. But when we compare ourselves to the perfect, holy, holy, holy God, there is only one conclusion that we can come up with. I, a poor, miserable sinner. That is who Jesus has come for. He is the great physician of body and soul, and he brings for us forgiveness of sins, literally the medicine of immortality. So for the for the Pharisees hearing this, this would be a, a word of, of convicting law, and, and the harshness of what Jesus says to them is uh, ironic. It's a bit humorous, in my opinion, where he says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from, from the Old Testament, like, you guys think you know the law, you don't, which is just a, it's a little bit of a barb, I think, there from Jesus. So, so to the Pharisees, this is a very convicting statement of law, but to the sinner, oh, to the sinner, this is, this is sweet gospel, isn't it? And that is the reaction that God's Word has every time it is proclaimed in its truth and purity. People will either hear it and believe it, or they will hear it and oppose it. There is no middle ground. And the same thing, we see it happening uh, all around us. We see it happening each and every day, and it will happen until Christ comes again. That same word that is life, forgiveness, and salvation for those who are broken by their sin is the word that causes such anger and opposition to those who don't want to admit their sin and don't want to believe that they need a Savior outside of themselves. It's, uh, it's more than just poking at them. This opposition is going to grow and grow and grow throughout, uh, throughout the gospel to the point where these people have only one alternative, and that is to completely silence this Jesus. We've got to kill him. But that by that very death, then, Jesus does the more difficult thing. He earns the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, that doesn't work out so well for yeah. him either, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pastor Poppy, any more thoughts on those, those texts before we move into this question about fasting? No, I think, I think we've covered that very well. Um, and uh, that quote, if I, if I remember right, I don't have my uh, Greek text in front of me, but if I remember right, I believe that's a quote from Hosea. And uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus loves to quote from the Minor Prophets, and uh, Hosea is a great, great book with regard to the scandal of the forgiveness of sins, where Hosea is called again and again and again to forgive his adulterous wife, a picture of how Christ, the bridegroom, forgives his church when we, in our sin of idolatry, flee after false idols. That picture of, of Christ as the bridegroom and his church as the bride comes up in this, this question that comes to Jesus. So now we, we meet, I think for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, the disciples of, of John. So, and, and they come asking about the practice of fasting. Who are these disciples of John, and, and why are they wondering about fasting? What's going on here, Pastor Poppy? Well, there, there are those who followed John. Uh, they went out into the wilderness where John was preaching and baptizing a uh, baptism for the forgiveness of sins, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we have some of these people who are devoted to John the Baptist in spite of the fact that John keeps telling them, I'm not the one. Behold, looky there, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, I must decrease, and he, Jesus, must increase. And yet these followers of John are so devoted to not only the teachings of John, but the man, John, that they're not hearing the full message that John is given. 
And so these disciples of John, they come to Jesus, and they're going, hey, uh, what's going on here? We follow John, and yet you guys aren't doing the same thing that we do. John taught us about fasting. How come your disciples are not fasting exactly the way John taught us? And so that's really the question. But the question is really a bogus question, because this section here is not about fasting. Jesus disregards the question about fasting, and he talks more about his identity and his authority. So, so he he's telling these disciples of John, in, in essence, look, you you need to start paying attention to me, not to not to John. John was pointing to me. Jesus would say to these disciples. So, it, it fasting is is what causes the situation to come about. But Jesus turns the answer and makes it more about him, and and he uses a couple of different images just in real quick succession. He starts with the image of a of a wedding. What's What's Jesus doing with the image of the wedding there at the, the first part of his answer? Well, a wedding, and, you know, we get these wedding feasts. We've got the parable of the ten virgins that's going to come up later on in Matthew. We've got uh, in John 2, we've got the wedding at Cana. So we have this, this picture of weddings that are uh, first-century Palestine weddings for us. They're all over in Scripture. And what we know for sure is that these are times of huge, huge celebration, sometimes lasting a week or more. It would be unthinkable to go to a wedding celebration and say, well, you know, I'm not going to participate because I'm fasting right now. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's a wedding feast. It would be crazy to fast during a wedding feast. And the wedding feast that he's talking about is the fact that the bridegroom, Jesus, is present and the bride, all those who believe in him and believe in his authority, are here to celebrate. His disciples are a part of this ongoing wedding feast. Jesus is here in the very midst of the people, God in the flesh. Don't worry about fasting. We're here to celebrate. And so Jesus would call the disciples of John to join in this feast, to, to join in the celebration with his disciples, because the bridegroom is here. And and then Jesus, he, he turns to a slightly different picture, two different pictures, actually, but I think it's a similar thing that's going on. He first talks about putting a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and then that that patch tearing away, and then new wine into old wineskins. What, what are the, the two images here, Pastor Poppy, and what's Jesus communicating with them? Well, he uses very common word pictures and very common images. You know, when, when Jesus uh, tells the parable of the sower, I like to imagine Jesus teaching the people and pointing to a farmer out there sowing his field. He goes, uh, oh yeah, the kingdom of heaven is like a sower. And so I imagine here Jesus is pointing to somebody that's got a patch on their, uh, on their shirt or on their robe or somebody that's carrying a wineskin because they're making a journey. He's using very common pictures and very common uh, examples that the people would understand. If you have a piece of clothing that is worn out, like an old pair of blue jeans, and you put a new piece of cloth on there, the first time you throw it in the washing machine or the dryer, uh, they're going to shrink at different uh, levels and you're going to have a bigger tear than what you had before. The same thing with the wineskin. If you have a wineskin that is stretched out and you put in new wine that is still fermenting, it's going to not stretch, but it's going to burst because this old wineskin has no place to go. Two very common illustrations from everyday life, but he's not really teaching them uh, about the practice of fabric or uh, any kind of uh, wineology or anything like that. He's teaching them about himself. The new has come. The Messiah, the promised one, is here. I am not a patch on your old religious system. I'm not a new drink of wine in your old religious system. I am a completely new thing. You need to rethink everything in light of the fact that God has now taken on flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is the real deal, the one you've been waiting for for hundreds of years. 
believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man, who has come into the world to save sinners. So rather rather than trying to fit Jesus into their way of thinking, Jesus says, start with me, and then mold your way of thinking according to me. Or, or to rather than reading the Old Testament and trying to sort of fit Jesus in, well, oh, it doesn't fit there. No, no. Start with Jesus, and then read the Old Testament in light of Jesus. Something, something to that effect? Correct. And uh, Jesus is not bringing a new set of ceremonial laws. Jesus has come to fulfill the ceremonial law, to fulfill all law, in fact. And Jesus is not going to come and set up, a, you know, new animal sacrifices, because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of these things that were a part of God's divine plan, all of these things pointed forward to the person and work of Jesus. And now the fulfillment has come. And when you see Jesus as the fulfillment, you're not going to try to stick him in to your religious system. Jesus is the heart, core, soul, and center of a new uh, system, if we want to look at it that way. Uh, we are saved by grace, through faith, on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's no longer a promise. The promise has been fulfilled. Pastor Poppy, with just about a minute here on the morning, this has been a great conversation. Give us a, a summary, wrap things up for us today. I guess if I was going to summarize things, I would, I would focus on that one word, authority. As you uh, read through the Scriptures, but especially the Gospel of Matthew, we see this word coming out again and again and again. God has authority over heaven and earth because he created it. Jesus has authority over heaven and earth because he perfectly fulfilled the will of his Father by being obedient, even obedient to the point of the cross. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus, risen victorious over sin, death, and the grave, ascended into heaven, crowned the King of heaven, and yet he still exerts his authority on the church through the work of the Holy Spirit, the means of grace, as this word of forgiveness in and only in Jesus Christ goes out to the four corners of the world. God is calling sinners like you and me, the whole world, right here and right now. Hear the word of Jesus, believe in his word, and his authority is crowned with his resurrection over the, over the sin, death, and the grave. Pastor Clint Poppy is the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Pastor Poppy, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a great honor and a great pleasure, Tim. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.